Welcome to Media Roots Radio. I'm your host, Abby Martin. And I'm your host, Robbie Martin. Thanks for joining us today, everybody. So as you guys know, Robbie and I talk a lot about foreign policy on the show through an anti-imperialist lens. So today we wanted to discuss U.S. empire with two anti-war veterans, uh, Mike Preisner and Spencer Rapone. They just launched a socialist military podcast encouraging rebellion and resistance within the ranks called Eyes Left. It's an excellent, highly insightful podcast series and also a crucial tool for active duty soldiers and veterans. Mike Preisner is an Iraq war veteran turned anti-imperialist, a decade-long member of the PSL, the Party for Socialism and Liberation. He's the subject of a viral video from his testimony at Winter Soldier back in 2008 that's a must-see, and I'll post that on the timeline now. And he's been arrested many times over the years protesting U.S. wars. He's also the co-creator, co-producer, and co-writer on The Empire Files, the investigative documentary series that I host on Telesaur English. Be sure to check out his recent piece debunking John Oliver about Venezuela on our YouTube channel, Empire Files. And full disclosure, we're also longtime partners. Welcome, Mike. Hey, glad to be on after <laughs> liking the show for so many years. Spencer Rapone is an Afghanistan war veteran, special operations soldier, and West Point officer when he publicly left the service wearing a Che Guevara shirt, an act of civil disobedience that reverberated shockwaves all the way to Marco Rubio. He's a member of the DSA, or Democratic Socialists of America. Thank you so much for coming on, Spencer. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me on. So to begin, I know both of you have recounted these stories in excellent depth already on your debut episode of Eyes Left, so I apologize in advance. Um, but I think it is important to just very, very briefly explain to our listeners what it was about your experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan that turned you into anti-imperialist activists and socialists. Mike, let's start with you real quick. It was really, it was really, I mean, I was in the Iraq war under Bush. And so it was, you know, weapons of mass destruction, all of these things that really, obviously, as soon as you got to Iraq, realized that it was just all bullshit. The idea that there is imminent attack, that the Iraqi people wanted us there. Um, and so I feel like that I, you know, most people in the military, when they're deployed, they can right away see that it's bullshit, right? Um, but then the question is, where do you go from there? And so, you know, I was one of many thousands who in the military saw that the war was based on lies and saw that the role we were playing was destroying the lives uh, of the Iraqi people. Um, and so just from there is, is kind of what opened the door to finding out, you know, what it was really all about. Going from that point on, you know, to try to get to the bottom of it, you find yourself finding an indictment of capitalism and how uh, the, the system led us to that point. It wasn't just, you know, Bush as an individual wanted to make some money for his oil executive friends, but a system that's based on an expansion and war for profit as a whole. And Spencer, some might find it shocking that you went public like this after investing so much into becoming a West Point officer, which is not an easy thing to do. I mean, what was the final straw? Donald Trump being your boss? Yeah, I think that's uh, <laughs> one big aspect of it. Um, so when I deployed to Afghanistan in the summer of 2011, it's a little bit different than Mike because even, um, you know, those who ostensibly were, you know, quote unquote, anti-war uh, a lot of them still thought that Afghanistan was somehow justified. But being over there, I, you know, soon saw otherwise. And as a, you know, a ranger and as an infantry soldier specifically, as a member of the ranger regiment, I was carrying out operations that, to me, had uh, no bearing or no justification whatsoever. And I felt like a big bully just preying on some of the most vulnerable uh, people on this planet. Um, so I was 
rather disillusioned with that whole experience. But at the time, I didn't really have a coherent um, anti-imperialist or socialist framework. So there's a lot of, you know, this whole maybe I could change things from the inside. Maybe it's just my leadership failed me. Um, I didn't have much of a structural uh, critique quite yet. So I uh, went the officer route, you know, applied and got accepted into West Point with the intentions of hopefully changing things. But upon arriving there, it didn't take me too long to realize that this issue uh, runs a lot deeper, that this is a systemic feature of uh, the military itself and... I dug a bit deeper and saw, you know, that the military is directly linked to our economic mode of production, capitalism. And from there, I was kind of stuck because, uh, you know, I was something of a socialist before my junior year. And then after I had affirmed, um, which means signing a contract that kind of says if I don't finish out West Point, I had to do enlisted time or find a way to pay back $250,000 out of pocket. I, uh, I found myself trying to rationalize it and I couldn't really... Um, actually do that in any uh, coherent or authentic way for me. So I just kind of stuck it out, tried to study as much as I can, arm myself with a critical mind, and figured there might be an opening for me at one point or another to resist and to go public about my grievances. And after I had commission and I was stationed at Fort Benning, Georgia, I did my infantry training. I got uh, After I finished there, I got assigned to Fort Drum. The Colin Kaepernick story came up again. Of course, Trump got elected and Kaepernick, in many ways, was an inspiration because I saw someone who risked it all, who lost his livelihood, his career, to speak truth to power, and I figured I could do my small part. Spencer, were you part of the Afghanistan surge under the Obama administration, where he sent additional troops? Yeah, uh, I, lo- I think I was a little bit after. That was more, um, if I'm not mistaken, like 09, 10, and I was 11. So I, I definitely think I'm affiliated in some way. But that was also more of, um, I-, I think, linked to the conventional uh, operational uh, objectives. I was in special operations. And the uh, the presence of a ranger unit in Afghanistan had existed since the beginning of the war and, and to this day still does. Got it. Very interesting. Uh and let's talk about Eyes Left. Mike, why did you and Spencer link up to start Eyes Left, which is a project geared to speaking directly to soldiers inside the war machine? And what kind of topics and segments are covered on the show? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, always there's an opportunity to win people in the military over to the side of anti-imperialism and anti-capitalism. Um, but at different moments, it, it exists at different levels. I mean, the Iraq war showed, you know, when there was thousands uh, of active duty service members who turned against the war, turned against Bush, participated in, in some acts of resistance in one form or another, whether it was going AWOL or deserting or doing public anti-war actions, going to demonstrations in uniform, things like that. It happened on a large scale. But the moment we're in now after the election of Trump, not just the election of Trump, though, but also the, the phenomenon of Bernie Sanders and the idea that, that socialism is now a word in, in the lexicon of young people. And, and there's this growing popularity around uh, uh, alternatives to capitalism and things like that, you know, that, that the military is, is in many ways just a reflection of, of broader society. And so the potential that exists in organizing uh, against Trump and for socialism in the broader population, there's a growing interest for that in the military as well. 
uh, especially with you know this real political crisis of Donald Trump, and of course, knowing many people in the military are questioning their own role in this you know fascistic administration that has potential to go in, in a lot of very dangerous directions. So we know that the you know the potential is there, and there's there's a need and a duty to do outreach to those in uniform uh, and try to turn them onto the right side. Uh, but I feel like you know if Spencer was just the the perfect co-host for a project like this because we represent kind of two different sides, uh, two different experiences that people in the military have. Uh, I was a non-commissioned officer. Spencer was an officer. I was in under the uh, Bush era. Spencer is in under the o- Obama and Trump era. Uh, I was on a, a military intelligence MOS side, and Spencer was in the, the combat arms. Um, and so just, uh, you know, I was in Iraq. He was in Afghanistan. I think that's so together um, we can relate to what people are going through in the military now and people who have gotten out recently. Just being able to speak to people in that position from, from our own experiences, having been in a similar position, uh, and helping guide them to the same type of transitions that we both went through. I mean, we both were true believers who became uh, on the exact opposite side of things. Uh, and so that's, that's I think, why, why it makes sense. And so, you know, this is, we're not breaking new ground here. I mean, the, the leftists and anti-war people organizing and doing outreach to soldiers and soldiers themselves leading that has a really long history from the, the entire existence of the U.S. military. There's been rebellions and mutinies and organizing, um, especially during the Vietnam War. And so our, our show, the Eyes Left podcast, is really in the in the tradition of the GI newspaper movement, which during Vietnam, soldiers uh, made newspapers that made fun of their officers, denounced the war, uh, gave information about your rights as a GI to have political material, to refuse orders to go to Vietnam. And the, the GI newspapers were really kind of an essential organizing tool for education and for rallying around uh, certain political points. And so, of course, Technology today is different. No one reads newspapers much anymore. But but we wanted to find a way to accomplish that same kind of uh, thing, uh, but in the in the contemporary setting. And the contemporary setting is interesting because a lot of the stuff you're talking about, Mike, I'm pretty familiar with having to do with like the Vietnam War and the draft and the way that information was. People tried to spread it to soldiers and and active duty people to try to get them to defect. What you're doing is different in the sense that we don't have the draft right now, at least. You're sending a very powerful message to people who have essentially volunteered. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's also a, like there's a misconception that the GI movement in Vietnam was was just among draftees, which which, of course, they were a big part of it. And of course, there's a, uh, a lot of grievances if you're a draftee. Uh, but, you know, the GI movement was also led by people who had volunteered for the military also and, and were in the military on, on their own terms and the war started or, or joined, volunteered to go to Vietnam and then very quickly realized what it was really about. And so, and there's, there's of course, different factors today that speak to some form of an economic draft or uh, reasons people are in, you know, where they felt they had no other option but to go in for school or to pay off a debt or for healthcare and, and all of those things. But I think that the, the thing that there's in common during the Vietnam era and now is from people who've been inside the military, I mean, most people in the military, like, really don't like being in the military, just on a, on a base level, whether or not they're political. You know, that's why, like, 80% of people who join the military get out after their their contract expires. It's not a, a career for most people. It's just a, a means to an end for a, a temporary period of time. Totally. Um, and there's just a quite a bit of discontent in it. Uh, and so that's that's kind of a starting point. You know, obviously all the problems we can point to in the military have a cause, and then they're connected to to broader things to to take your your consciousness to another level. Yeah, let's let's get into just exactly what it was like, what your experiences were like being inside the empire's military. I mean, we don't really often hear that perspective, especially after the Iraq war ended. I feel like we used to hear a lot more 
personal testimonies. But Spencer, you specifically, you're a ranger doing special operations in Afghanistan. That's pretty crazy. And there's this sort of romanticized Hollywood conception of what that's like. We see movies like Lone Survivor with Mark Wahlberg. Director, <laughs> P- director Peter Berg seems to be a military favorite, golden boy for directing these kinds of movies. I think John Cena was also in a recent Afghanistan war movie that was a similar f- setup where he was like by himself and he had to like fight a bunch of Taliban. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't see it, so I don't know. Con- contrasting with what that perception is like, what is it actually like, and what are you really doing when you are in these special operations uh, in Afghanistan? Well, um, so special operations uh, constitutes a wide spectrum. Um, my particular uh, role as a ranger was direct action, um, and direct action in the military sense, which means essentially killing or capturing uh, people. So in terms of like the Hollywood aspect of it, the, the biggest difference for me uh, being over there and seeing things firsthand was in all these Hollywood films that you mentioned, there seems to be this um, coherent narrative wherein there's a, there's a through line of something happening. Uh, there's a challenge the soldiers need to face. They uh, succeed, and then it's all worth it uh, in the end. But, of course, real life is a lot more complicated uh, than that. There isn't really a, a mustache-twirling villain you encounter uh, when you're on these missions. Uh, quite the opposite. Um, even as a ranger being on the proverbial tip of the spear, as they called it, the vast majority of people that were the so-called enemy were just poor farmers of, of one sort uh, or another and kind of caught up in a situation mostly out of their control uh, that was uh, engendered by uh, the U.S. presence there. The uh, area of operations I was in, I was in... Um, operating out of uh, Fob Salerno, which is coast province in eastern Afghanistan on the Pakistani border. And so we were told we were going after what was called the Haqqani Network, which was like a loosely affiliated terrorist network to the Taliban and so on. Um, But, you know, every mission uh, I would go on, I I would just find um, myself and my fellow rangers just tearing people's villages to shit, barging into their homes, ransacking them, we separate the women and children, you know, put a bag over their head, cuff them, take them to uh, a detainee center, which is just a euphemism for a prison. And the majority of the time, these guys had nothing to do with the intelligence we were given um, for, you know, I think two reasons. A lot of times it was bad. And, and the other more important reason is a lot of that intelligence is merely a fabrication. For me, it was almost like a lot of these missions became a self-fulfilling prophecy and that we weren't encountering the imminent threat we were told we would find over there so we would essentially go out and try to pick a fight and due to our own actions and presence make something happen uh but in all reality there really wasn't anything uh, we were doing that was contributing to the health and welfare of the afghan people and in fact it was quite the opposite we made things immeasurably uh worse uh, just by our, own, our our very presence there i mean of course when you know someone would get killed or we would, you know, destroy a village or whatever. You know, that was, you know, hor- horrific. But just the mere presence of an occupying force there has a, a distinct material and psychological effect on the people of Afghanistan. And overall, in the last 18 years, 17 to 18 years of U.S. presence there, we have only made things spiral uh, more and more out of control to the detriment of the actual Afghan people who live there. 
Right. I mean, I can't imagine 17 years of just straight occupation, bloodshed. I know that civilian casualties are actually at among the highest rates since the invasion. And, and another peculiar aspect of this perpetual occupation, Spencer, is the opium production that continues to just skyrocket exponentially. I mean, year after year, it seems like it's just going up and up and up. And I know that Part of the operations obviously were, you know, allowing, you know, the Taliban had eradicated the opium, of course, before the occupation and invasion and um, farmers now are able to cultivate. Any comments on just why that's happening and also what what did soldiers think just about that whole offshoot of what's going on? Uh, well, so in terms of the opium question, uh, that was more, um, in the, I mean, it's it's everywhere, but that was more in the south, um, mm. not, not so much where I was at, but I mean, everyone knew about it. Um, and f- again, for uh, soldiers and, and the specific type of soldier I was with, that was kind of like an afterthought uh, or a joke to them. And so I'm like, oh, haha, so funny. Uh, we're, we're here, you know, killing and capturing people. And there's this, uh, this horrific drug trade going on that the U.S. has a very uh, big stake in. <laughs> You know, uh, especially on the tactical level, which I was operating at, you're really not, uh, you know, taught to examine those types of moral complexities. I mean, because in addition to the opium trade, of course, the natural resources and the minerals present in Afghanistan are another big reason why, uh, you know, the U.S. has a a very vested interest over there. But uh, you don't really um, encounter those types of questions, especially as a lower enlisted soldier, which I was at the time. But even, you know... Uh, the, the junior officers and NCOs there, they, they weren't interested at all. If you would ever try to kind of have those more, I guess, sophisticated conversations, they would be suppressed and you would be told, you know, to just execute your tasks, um, accomplish the mission mm-hmm. and, and stick to, you know, what you've been told. Very interesting. It, it seems like there's a kind of a more of a Wild West aspect to the way the Afghanistan war is being managed compared to other war zones. On one hand, we hear stories about how all the soldiers there are smoking hashish. There's a look the other way sort of approach to like Afghan military officials, like raping young boys. There's there's all this stuff we hear about how unsupervised it seems to be. And then we're also hearing stories about kill squads that, that take trophies and neo-Nazis and white supremacists in the U.S. military serving in Afghanistan. We recently saw a photo of a Nazi flag flying on a tank in Afghanistan, even though it was actually an Australian unit. But how common are, are those type of beliefs, like the more hateful white supremacy beliefs or even just sort of like bloodthirsty, sociopathic ways of looking at the Afghanistan people? Yeah, I think uh, you nailed it right there with the um, the bloodthirsty sociopathic view of Afghan people. There, there are um, there are a number of people who have the more, I guess, explicit neo-Nazi uh, fascist beliefs. My platoon sergeant, for example, was one of those guys who, like, you know, would shave his head down to the skin. He had a tattoo of uh, Mjolnir, you know, the, the hammer of Thor, which, you know... Of course, is white supremacist iconography, and he would talk about how he worships sure. the hammer of Thor. One of those, you know, uh, guys. It's that barely coded. Wow. It's the it's the Norse yeah. Norse worship. It's like I'm just a I just repu- <laughs> appreciate supremacy. I just appreciate European um you know Aryan <laughs> traditions. Yeah, well, yeah, and 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 in their own mindset, then they're kind of like they're taking up this mantle of this warrior class that sets out on this uh, grand uh, adventure to meet the enemies of the United States in, in a glorious battle. Um, but, yeah, I mean, 
the majority of uh, the guys I was with, you know, they would always talk about how they couldn't wait to get back out and kill. You know, even before we deployed, you know, one of the uh, guys who had just um, got put into a leadership position was talking about how he's going to be a killing machine over there, how he misses it, how he hates being back in garrison because he's, you know, getting soft. He's not encountering that, that high, that rush you get when you get to encounter uh, other human beings and have the ability to take their life with impunity. So I, I'd yeah. say the specific uh, form of white supremacist violence and uh, fascist ideology you find is just by way of um, the uh, othering of the Afghan people, viewing them as subhuman and as almost like a sport for when you go out and you can inflict uh, violence on them. Yeah, that makes sense. Mike, you were in military intelligence and the invasion of Iraq. You joined the military before 9-11. But, I mean, military intelligence also sounds like a very important classified job. What the hell was this really like? What exactly were you actually doing there? A little bit of an inside perspective, that, um, that cliche joke that military intelligence is an oxymoron would be quite true. I mean, just, just looking at my experience, right? I mean, I, my military intelligence job was a new job in the Army. It was like a new thing that got set up. And so they convinced a whole wave of recruits to go into this MOS or military occupational specialty. The way it was all pitched to us, you know, me and a, a friend in, in Tampa who, who went through the same processing center, was that this was some like spy satellite thing. You could do four years and then you're going to go work in the, um, you know, intelligence apparatus in this high paid, high skill, fancy satellite job, some, some shit like that. Uh, so, but when all of us got to the, the training school, the military intelligence Academy, it, no one knew what it was. And we were like, what the <laughs> hell is this thing? And so we trained for eight months on this computer system that ev literally everyone in the course was just like, why the fuck did I sign up for this job? This is completely dumb. And I'm just staring at dots on a computer screen. Um, and, but then when, you know, then we got to our actual unit and we don't even have the equipment. So my first year in the army, I, we didn't even have the equipment that we were trained on. And so my role as a military intelligence specialist was we would just sit in an empty office all day and make each other do push-ups and like <laughs> inspect each other's uniforms and things like that. So really my first year in the army and my first year in the half in the army before Iraq was literally doing nothing and not even touching the, my job. When we finally got the equipment, right before we deployed to Iraq, we got the equipment. My squad alone was signed for about $30 million worth of until this radar equipment. So that tells you what was really behind the creation of this new job. It was just Jesus this Christ. vastly expensive Sun Microsystems computer system. Uh, so no, none of us knew how to use it. So we deployed to Iraq with this equipment. No one knows what to do because we haven't touched it in a year. Uh, and then we immediately... We, we realize that the whole job is just completely pointless, that this radar system doesn't even work in any type of contemporary battlefield. You know, it's meant for like a Cold War era, like big fighting huge formations of tanks and things like that. So within a couple days of using this equipment, the brigade commander is like, what the fuck is this? Shut it down. And we never touched it again for the whole rest of the deployment. So my, so my, job, my job in military intelligence, I did the job for about a couple days for my entire four years in the military. Uh, yeah, and that was, that's, that's the military intelligence word. But the one, the one good thing I got out of it was, was the window that I got as being military intelligence when we deployed to Iraq. Because we were, our whole thing was, we're going to Iraq because there's these weapons of mass destruction, and, and I was a part of the invasion to find them. And so I was in the only military intelligence uh, unit that was in this entire north section of the country. So if it was anyone's job to find WMDs, it'd be the job of, of my company, the intelligence company that was attached to the, to the infantry brigade that we were part of. And it was 
was like a joke. I mean, anytime all but my friends are in the, the counterintelligence people, the human intelligence people, when they'd bring to the commander, hey, we have a guy who says he knows where the WMDs are, it would just be laughed at because the commanders knew that that wasn't actually part of the mission. And so huh. my inside, my only, the only benefit of my top secret security clearance at the time was seeing that how they just laughed at the idea of there being WMDs, which in my mind going there was, was the entire reason that, that we were there. Well, Wait, it's really it's, interesting because... So you mean yeah, there weren't Robbie? squads of people in Iraq all, all assigned to try to hunt down the WMDs? No, not only that, but when they <laughs> when they tried to do it, they were like told to do the the real job. They're like, "Why are you wasting your time in talking to people trying to find where the WMDs are? Like that's not why we're here." <laughs> I, I mean, I'm reminded of that one clip of Dick Cheney, that famous interview where he's like, "You know, of course we're not gonna go and invade Iraq." He was like, "It would be a disaster if we had this full fledged occupation and invasion." He's like, "Pieces of Iraq would fly off." Um, so when you look at things like that, when the Bush administration officials seem to have known what they were getting into, it just stands contrary to this kind of bumbling bureaucratic mess where you don't know what the fuck is going on and people are just kind of told to do whatever. I mean, how do you account for that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think anyone who's uh, been in the military, really anyone who's had a job with a, a boss, that's an idiot. I mean, you could, there's just a supreme incompetence and supreme arrogance. And I think that what happened with the Bush administration and the Iraq war, I mean, they really thought that the Iraq war would be easy, just like they thought the Afghanistan war would be easy. And then they had a lot of other targets on their list, you know, Iran, Syria, um, Libya, all these other places that they had planned to um, you know, run through and invade or have some kind of military inventions to, to overthrow. And so I think it was not really anticipated the way the Iraq war was going to go. And, and from my perspective, that was really evident by the fact that, you know, there was even high level debates within the military establishment over the, you know, remember General Shinseki was the one that was, we're not sending enough troops and all this stuff. Imagine if all of a sudden George W. Bush and Rumsfeld are the generals of an army. I mean, that's essentially what what happened. They're they're the commanders of the army, and they had, they thought that it would be easy, just like they thought Afghanistan would be easy. And here we are, defeated 17 years later, just like the Iraq War was was a defeat. So I think there's there's arrogance going into it, but when it starts blowing up in their faces, when it starts when it becomes apparent that they actually it wasn't going to be an easy victory for them. Uh, none of them are going to accept responsibility for what's happened, and they're just going to send more and more people uh, to die and kill for no reason, and then it just becomes this endless kind of thing like we see in Afghanistan or some kind of you know retreat like, like we saw in Iraq. Yeah, and who knew Dick would be the sage there? Uh, you know, I'll, I'll just never forget Bush on that aircraft carrier. What was it, a couple of weeks after with the Mission Accomplished banner? Yeah. Yeah. No, we we were in Iraq when that happened, and we were all like, "Okay, great, we're going home now." <laughs> we all thought, you know, we was gonna, we thought we we're gonna be there like three months max. And so when Bush did that, we were like, "All right, nice, we're we're on our way." And we actually all wrote letters, be like, "Okay, we're gonna be home in a couple of weeks." But you know, Jesus Christ. Um, so Spencer, we recently heard about that soldier being awarded a Purple Heart for being wounded in combat in an undisclosed location, which of course ended up being Syria. But I mean, this just shows how many places the military is actually on the ground, unknown, completely unknown to the American public. From your inside knowledge, is it just Iraq and Afghanistan where special ops are fighting? I mean, how extensive is the empire's military presence worldwide? Well, of course, um, it's not just the Middle East. I, I think it's no secret anymore that there's various special operations forces throughout Africa uh, right now. Um, but like towards the latter uh, part of my time uh, when I was still active duty, I was actually you know, talking with some folks who are still in, in or affiliated with the Ranger Regiment. And you know, they would tell me how, oh, you know, we have a platoon right now in Syria, this and that. Just like, you know, casual, as if it's, there's nothing to it. Um, and of course, 
you know, again, I, I wasn't um, – I don't want to overplay my access to knowledge, but given my own experiences deploying to Afghanistan and knowing kind of like that special operations culture because it is, it is, you know, its own, you know, specific kind of way of life, you know, and how they teach you to act and talk and say things. Um, and, of course, there's like this code that you don't speak uh, to anyone who hasn't been indoctrinated. But, yeah, I mean, there is no doubt that the special operations forces constituting the United States military are – across the world i mean uh the, the rangers again more of a direct action role uh kill and capture but the various special forces groups uh their entire mission set is that they're assigned regionally uh to different places uh so uh whenever you know we we hear news stories of undisclosed location or whatever other type of euphemistic language uh rest assured that there are far more that aren't being reported on right now uh, that are being carried out, you know, as we speak at this very moment. Yeah, I think uh, last I heard, it was like 70% of the world's countries had special ops on the ground. Of course, so many bases that the Pentagon can't even cite the lily pads off of the 800 main bases. I mean, they can't even fucking tell you the number because they don't know. Um, but I mean, ha- yeah, go ahead. No, it, it's what I just wanted to say. It, one interesting aspect of this, too, is that, you know, in special operations, you're almost taught to view the regular, the conventional army, with contempt. Uh, you don't want to end up there. And while you are operating uh, in a country or a part of the world that you know isn't disclosed to the public, it's almost like you're doing this because, of course, you know those regular soldiers aren't capable of it. They don't deserve to be here. It's just us. So it's also an interesting relationship with how you know, by not only do you other the the people you know you're fighting and you're killing, but even your own ostensible comrades who aren't in your unit, you're you know to view as lesser than you. You don't want to end up there because you'll just end up as a bullet stopper. So you have this exceptionally chauvinistic and elitist mentality that kind of is almost the the driving force of the special operations community. Mike, how much damage? is this violent apparatus that we're talking about causing to humanity and the environment? And why do you think Americans should focus on organizing specifically against the empire, U.S. militarism and wars? Well, I mean, it's really hard to overstate the impact of the U.S. military on people and planet. I mean, just just at the very base level, just at wherever there's a military base, Right. Even if there's not any kind of armed conflict. Right. So like the U.S. base in in Korea or the U.S. base in the Philippines, anywhere that there's a U.S. base in the world, you know, when we hear that there's around a thousand U.S. bases all around the planet in virtually every country, immediately around that base, there there follows all types of social problems from rape by soldiers to acts of violence to military accidents where they run over people with tanks, as, as happened in, thing, in Korea and, and other places. Um, and so just the, the problems that emerge just from a base being there, just the impact on the population, both with, with money and, um, and, and other side effects of it, just there, I mean, that's why there's a movement in every country, there's a military base against the, the U.S. military base. Uh, and any soldier who's been in one of these places will, will tell you that, that that's the case. Um, but that's just like even the best case scenario. The best case scenario, you're going to have all these horrible problems. Um, but when you, when you talk about like actual occupations in a, in a war type context, I mean, it, the, uh, Iraq is a country that is, is now crushed for generations. I mean, it is going to take several generations after the U.S. role ends for Iraq to, to be able to rebuild um, from, from what it's, what's happened to it. I mean, to, the fact that one in three Iraqis was killed, wounded, or displaced by the U.S. occupation. I mean, and that's just who was directly killed, wounded, or displaced, not to mention their family. So really every single 
individual in the country has been either either wounded or had lost a family member to the crisis or, or made homeless because of it. And so to, it, it's impossible for us to fathom people living in the United States, what it's like to, to go through an existence like that. And now for, for many people's entire life in Iraq and Afghanistan, they've, they've known only that existence. And so the, this is why, you know, any demand of, of veterans of these wars who are, who are against them has to include vast reparations for, for the, to the people for the you know, sheer destruction of their communities and livelihoods for, for no other reason than profits of, of some people at the top. Um, and so that, that, of course, that's why all the occupations have to end everywhere in the world. Um, but one of the things that gets missed a lot, like you said, is the impact on the environment. I mean, so many people today recognize that we're at, we're at a tipping point. You know, the debate's no longer uh, is, you know, the, it, are, is humanity destroying the planet and our ability to live on the planet? The debate is over whether or not it's too late to reverse it and too late to save the planet. Uh, and there's differing thoughts on, on whether we've already passed the tipping point of being able to save the species. Uh, but the Pentagon is the world's biggest polluter, bigger than any corporation, bigger than any individual country. It's the Pentagon. And this is from, you know, the crazy fuel emissions, because there's no standards on them, to the fact that they do the, conduct these war games. You know, they recently are doing these war games in the, you know, near China and things like that. Whenever they do these war games, these annual war games all over the place, they literally just blow up fucking... 100 square miles of the ocean and coral reefs and all these things. So like just the pollution from the amount of munitions, not to mention depleted uranium being dumped on places, uh, you know, the, the legacy of Agent Orange is still there. All of these chemicals from chemical corporations that are dumped on countries that have generations of effect of cancers and things like that. Um, you know, so that's just, that's another reason that, that people have to oppose militarism as a direct impact on people's lives, but also the future of our species now uh, weighing in the balance because of this, this level of pollution. Yeah, DU, the depleted uranium, the unexploded munitions all across even Laos, Cambodia still that are killing people every year. And not to mention that the Pentagon is actually absolved from all climate treaties internationally. Uh, but Mike, what is your response to the, that Sam Harris ilk who would say, you know, we're still better than these kind of barbaric uh, entities because we mean well. We mean well when we um, go on these military incursions and try to spread democracy. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very easy to show the reality behind that, right? I mean, it's the same, it's the same mentality that has politicians um, saying it's in our national interest to be at war in these places. All, the, the ideas of Sam Harris, that, that moral, uh, you know, the, the, the high, heightened moral space that they have in their ivory tower, all these things, and that our country is uh, somehow more moral than others, and therefore we have responsibility, all this stuff. This is all under, this is all accepting that we are one country with one set of national interests. That is not what America is. Anyone who lives in America, exists in American society, knows that there is not one set of national interests, and we are not one country. We are two nations. There is a tiny, tiny group at the top that benefits from all the things the government does, that benefits from war, that has their own particular set of interests. War does help them. Uh, capitalism does help them. And then there's the other nation, the nation of people uh, that have less than $500 in savings, which is like 70% uh, of American workers can't afford a $500 emergency. People that will go bankrupt if they have a medical emergency uh, and die because they can't afford, afford the care. That's another nation with a very different set of interests that doesn't benefit from war, that doesn't benefit from capitalism. And so people like Harris or really any of the politicians in, in mainstream politics 
politics, say, yes, there are mistakes made. We want to do good. But ultimately, we're all in this together. We are not all in this together. The vast majority of this country lives a very different existence, has a very different set of interests than those who are calling all the shots. Um, so, yeah, I would just say that. I mean, any time someone tries to tell you that or even says the word national interest, you're ignoring the fact that we live in a class society that is deeply divided by class uh, and status. And that, that's really at the core of all of the problems we face and puts everything in a different perspective when you start to look at it that way. But, Mike, you just need to listen to Sam Harris's guided meditations, which I just did for the first <laughs> time last weekend, and it was extremely bizarre. Yeah, guided you meditations know, it's, it's, on how to turn you into a serial killer? <laughs> <laughs> Why torture is good. After the meditation, I realized that I could justify torture. Yeah, you mentioned all the the terrible pollution, you know, that the Pentagon is responsible for. What you refer to as a lot of this damage we do around the world. And if we're talking about even just this idea of national interest, like if you're a nationalist and you care about this country and that's like your main thing, a lot of those people seem to also ignore the fact that the military and the Pentagon pollute the fuck out of our own country. There's large areas and just for example in the Hawaiian Islands that are covered with landmines that still haven't been cleaned up by the US military that are just completely cordoned off for the general public there's burn pits where they burn toxic uh, chemicals and toxic materials cancer causing materials in area 51 um, where the EPA is not allowed to go there's all these examples i mean Abby and I one of the first things we did together was uh, how the formerly US military ran Lawrence Livermore lab in Livermore was basically dumping plutonium around the fucking suburb. So, you know, there's countless examples of this. Let's give a question to Spencer now. Spencer, you were serving in the military when sort of this transition of the new administration happened. And the Trump administration so far has been talking out both sides of its mouth saying that it doesn't want to be interventionist. Trump claims he's an anti-interventionist, but yet they're openly calling for regime change in places like Venezuela, Iran, and North Korea. As someone who is around soldiers a lot, and even you know during this transition, what do you think the consensus is among soldiers about considering these countries not only just a threat, but people actually actively wanting to go to war with these countries? Yeah, so um, I, it's rather complex because among soldiers, especially those in the combat arms world... Um, Although your life sucks and you don't particularly like the day-to-day aspect of you know living in the military, um, you almost don't feel fully fledged until you've deployed somewhere. Uh, so because of that, because you don't feel like you've arrived or you don't have the, the status or experience, um, even those who might be a little bit uh, hesitant uh, to want uh, to go overseas when things like start arising, like, oh, we might be invading any of the, you know, aforementioned countries, there's this really perverse sense of excitement uh, amongst the soldiers that set in. Um, and I think part of that is because, uh, for example, a lot of the war games or the different uh, training events you'll do, you'll kind of have this imagined uh, enemy. And one of the most prevalent ones that was used in our uh, different training events was known as the Arianians, which, you know, you don't have to peel back too many layers to see what that's a cipher for. Um, and so, Iran? yeah, absolutely. Uh, and yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not exactly sophisticated on their part, but, but they, they, they prime, uh, you know, from the moment you, you start basic training to when you get to your unit, you, you're primed to accept uh, a pending invasion of any number of these countries as the normal state of affairs. Um, now, the contradiction, though, is that 
Again, most soldiers are rather discontented, uh, you know, mostly. It, it's how you find a way to uh, reach them and explain what their actual relation to power will be uh, if they were to invade any of these countries and, and what the fallout is and how to understand the perspective of Iranians or those who are North Koreans or Venezuelans uh, and so on. So the brass, though, are always looking for another bullet point on their resume on their legacy uh, to invade. But among the uh, the junior officers, the uh, enlisted soldiers, uh, it's a little bit more complex. Whenever, again, you hear that oh, we might be deploying or there might be an invasion on the horizon, there is a sense of excitement. But I think there is a way to reach out to those types of people to get them to understand that, no, you don't actually want this. And this is not only horrible for you, but even more so, it, it means absolute catastrophe for the people who lives in the, uh, live in those countries. And, you know, there's a, there's a mindset among the American public right now, even among anti-war activists sometimes that I talk to, that they don't seem to be able to process the idea that the U.S. government would be crazy enough to launch a full-scale invasion of a country like Iraq again. But that being said, all the countries that we just sort of discussed that are, you know, being thrown into the mix of possible regime change candidates under the Trump administration, which one of those scenarios do you think is most likely to flare up in the future under the Trump administration between Iran, North Korea, and Venezuela? Um, well, from my reading of history uh, and my own knowledge on these different matters, in many ways the U.S. has, I mean, not military presence, but the CIA presence in Venezuela, of course, and the attempted coups and so on, uh, and Invading a Latin American country would kind of be in keeping with the typical American imperialist uh, tradition. Um, and it's difficult because I think Trump Trump doesn't have much of a coherent ideology, especially in foreign policy. He kind of does whatever the last person who's been in the room with him says. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> that means that he's listening to people though, like John Bolton and Mattis and so on who are absolutely hawks and would you know love an opportunity to uh, invade uh, Iran or North Korea. Um, but the one that most troubles me, I think, is uh, Venezuela, just because, uh, I mean, like, just what, was it a week and a half ago when uh, a drone almost killed uh, uh, Maduro? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it, it's, uh, there's definitely situations within Venezuela that trouble me. Um, North Korea, I don't know right now, of course, uh, the, the nuclear threat is always, you know, a, a factor there. And uh, honestly, I Iran's military, as much as, like, Bolton and them would love nothing more than to invade Iran. I, I think they definitely are very much uh, leery of the fact that Iran has a very effective professional military force and so on. Yeah. But again, there's no rhyme or reason and there's no real rationale to any of these decisions made by those who inhabit uh, the Pentagon and the White House right now. So I wouldn't be surprised if any of that were to occur. But the one that most troubles me would definitely be Venezuela. Yeah. And Mike, let's picture what that nightmare scenario would actually look like if the U.S. was actually going to do something as crazy as invading a country like Iran. What would that actually look like? Like, what what could we expect out of something that insane if that were to happen? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, like, big words don't always break out because it's the intention of the, the belligerent party, you know, 
like, for example, World War I didn't happen because all the imperialist powers got together and said, you know what, we're going to go to war to redivide the globe, and now we're declaring World War I. It was a series of escalating incidents and escalating tensions that, you know, of course, the people that are leading them and leading the escalations, they have no skin in the game, so they're going to you know, they're not going to risk getting their leg blown off or anything. So they're happy to escalate them, but they happen unintentionally. And major wars can break out just because of, um, you know, crazy decisions at a particular moment that then spiral into something that the that our so-called leaders refuse to get us out of. So it, it's possible that, uh, uh, you know, there could be some kind of military confrontation with Korea or Iran or Venezuela, not because the Trump administration decides, OK, now we're going to start a war with Iran and Venezuela, but can be doing things and escalating things to the point where it kind of happens uh, on its own because of the actions of, of U.S. imperialism. But it's important to, to know that, you know, the U.S. military, which brags, you know, about being the, the richest, most well-funded military of all time. I mean, just in terms of the amount of equipment the U.S. military has dwarfs every other military. Like, for example, like China has like one aircraft carrier and the U.S. has like 20 or something like that. So it's like, you know, the, the U.S. military itself and its reach dwarfs every other military. But the U.S. military is set up to be an expansionist invading military, right? I mean, we have this big military where we're also in virtually every single country and uh, occupying all of them and, and, and planning for war on, on multiple fronts and are on, in war in, on multiple fronts all across the globe. But countries like Korea and countries like Iran in particular, and, and Venezuela's included this in the well as well, their entire military apparatus and training and equipment is for one thing only, to repel a U.S. attack. So imagine, you know, it's like, you know, for, for decades, all they're doing is building up the military and anticipating every type of way the U.S. will attack and how to, how to fight that. So, you know, the U.S. military says it has this big, powerful navy that could destroy the Iranian navy. Well, if they try to go into the Strait of Hormuz, the Iranian navy, all it's been doing uh, since its revolution is training to destroy the U.S. navy in the Strait of Hormuz. And so, you know, all those sailors who join the navy thinking that, you know, they're going to be a million miles away from any kind of fighting, there's going to be thousands of them sinking to the bottom of the ocean. Um, and so I think that, you know, one reason why people should... Uh, have strong opposition to this is because that the level of death and destruction would be would be massive. Um, but of course, you know, beyond the fact that thousands and thousands of U.S. service members and their families who are uh, with them in Korea and in other places, um, that aside, the fact that, you know, that, of course, the, the millions of people in the attacked countries will also be destroyed, people who are not our enemies, people who we have no reason to fight, people who oppose no threat to us or our families or our, our livelihoods here at home. Um, but just it, it all comes down to really what the role of the U.S. military is. It's, it's, you know, we're taught this fantasy our whole lives that, you know, these countries are our enemies and these countries are our friends. And there are enemies because they oppose freedom and human rights. And these countries are our friends because they support freedom and human rights uh, and democracy. But when you really look down the list, uh, the U.S.'s friends, uh, closest friends, do not have democracy, have the worst human rights violations on the planet. And the places we're told we must attack and fight, you know, places like Korea, places like Venezuela, um, have far more uh, democratic and, and human rights standards than, than we have than we have here. And it really, when you really see what your role is, it comes down to you are a battering ram for U.S. capitalist interests. And that's all it is. If a country closes itself off to the, to the dictates of U.S. capitalism and U.S. corporations, then they're put on the chopping block. And then your job as a soldier is to go in and use violence to take them out. Uh, and so some CEOs can, can increase their quarterly profits. That's really, that's really all, all it is. And so, um, of course, it would be devastating, any of these, these possible wars. But really, at its, even if they weren't devastating, even if there's zero casualties, I mean, it's a supreme crime against humanity. Actually, the result of the Nuremberg trials was the worst crime that you can commit is a war of aggression against a sovereign nation. And that's exactly what these things would be, which is why people have the right to refuse to be part of them. They're illegal and immoral orders, which we have a duty to disobey. 
Do you think that that's becoming more apparent now since, uh, you know, first it was the war on communism and then obviously World War One, World War Two, and then the Cold War where Vietnam was obviously under the umbrella of, but now it just seems like it's kind of more blatant, like just randomly, you know, if we were to invade Venezuela, I mean, how would we even justify that to soldiers to like well, risk your life to go die for invading Venezuela. You're right. And I think the Iraq war was, is a, was a very important impact on the consciousness of, of the country because, you know, I, I was in the military before 9-11, just a, a month before 9-11 is when I joined. Uh, and so, you know, no one, the, only, the most recent war we had on our memory was the Gulf War, right? And that was just humanitarian mission. Barely anybody died, supposedly. And it was just because there was this war of aggression by Iraq against Kuwait and the U.S. went in to, to protect our ally. And that was the only recent memory we had. And so there is this uh, sense of, of trust, of knowing that war is only happening when they're absolutely necessary. But Iraq, I think, showed everybody what's possible. That the politicians, the entire military establishment can just straight up lie, make up a story that's obviously a fake story, and then just send thousands of people to their deaths and kill over a million people just based on just some bullshit thing that's very obviously about access uh, to a country's nationalized national resources. And so I think that there's been a big effort to rewrite that history. That's why if you go back and listen to Obama's speech when he announces the end of the Iraq war, it's all about rewriting the history, why we really went, what soldiers really did there, trying to make it make people remember something differently. Um, that's why it's, it's part of our job is to keep the history alive, what really happened there, and why every action that the U.S. military takes is, is along those same lines. Speaking of rewriting history, uh, Spencer, on Eyes Left, I saw you guys posted that incredible video retelling that story that we've all heard multiple times from multiple places about soldiers getting spit on in mass returning home from Vietnam by, you know, young female activists in San Francisco with flowers in their hair. I mean, I remember General Schwarzkopf telling that story when I was a kid. Oh, seriously? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, talk about, about what you guys found about how, you know, where that all came from, Spencer. Well, I mean, to be honest, the, the genesis of this notion of the spat upon Vietnam veteran originates from Rambo First Blood. Like, I'm not even kidding. <laughs> that is like yeah. the first time it entered the public consciousness. Like, you know, wow. towards the end, when Stallone gives that speech. I mean, there's different been different historical accounts written on it, but that's really when it started. So... It, it's no uh, surprise then that chuds like Schwarzkopf and them <laughs> would claim that it was, you know, factual because they watched a movie that glorified some of their own experiences or people they know's uh, experiences. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's completely, it's a, it's a Hollywood invention uh, that has no basis in the historical record whatsoever because the, the leading charge in the anti-war movement during the Vietnam era was returning veterans. Um, even those who weren't as, you know, radical, those who were part of a more just kind of anti-war, somewhat liberal contingent, you know, they, they had no experiences whatsoever reflecting this idea that, oh, veterans came back and someone who looks like, uh, like a character in Escape from New York, like in the prison, you know, was spitting on them. No, no, uh, it's just complete nonsense. What's fascinating is the movie Rambo First Blood, up until that last scene, you can almost see it as like a critique on police authoritarianism or something. I mean, <laughs> Rambo murders like a fucking like sheriff's <laughs> deputy who's like just trying to kill him out of a helicopter for no reason. And I mean, he doesn't, he like throws a rock at him and he falls yeah. out of a helicopter. So he's like, you know, he doesn't actually kill him. But it's a fascinating movie. And I recommend any of our listeners just watch it because it's actually nothing like the later Rambo movies at all. 90% of the film could be seen almost as a critique of, uh, of you know, the U.S. imperialist war machine. 
Exactly, yeah. The alienation many veterans feel. But then, yeah, you had that last, like, that last bit when he gives that speech, it, like, almost completely, uh, you know, undermines it. But yeah, it, it's complicated. Well, the Pentagon had to sprinkle in a little bit of their own propaganda. Yeah, I mean, that, the spitting thing's funny, too. I mean, it's, uh, everyone should go on the, uh, at Eyes Left Pod, our Twitter, to see the video clip that, that we're referring to. But it features this comic panel showing a, a woman activist woman, hippie-looking woman spitting on a soldier's face. Um, and that's actually like a U.S. military comic. I mean, it was used to, to make, make people in the military feel alienated from the progressive movement uh, because they know the real history, that they are actually embraced by it um, and, and we're, we're very much a part of it. Uh, but it's really funny to look at, even in the thread, the comment thread of when we posted that video clip, there are countless people saying, my dad told me this exact story. This actually happened. And, it, and, not, and down to the very detail, that not only did their dads have stories of being spit on, but it was by a woman and in San Francisco at the San Francisco airport, which is ridiculous because like no one was getting off the plane from Vietnam at SFO. Um, so it's just funny that the de- down to that detail, this kind of collective mismemory. But then I, I br- bring it up because one of the comments exposed it all. And one person said, my father, I grew up with my father, who's a Vietnam vet, telling this story that it happened to his friend, saying, my buddies got spit on when I got home. And then over the years, that story changed into it was him that was spit on. And then this guy said, he's like, I challenged my dad about, well, now you're saying it happened to you. Where was this? And he, what are the details? And he couldn't give any. So he himself showed that, yeah, also my father told me this same myth, um, but I saw him adopted as his own memory when, when it really wasn't. And that was really the impact of it. And still today, you know, like, Everyone will say, like, it was a shame what happened to the soldiers when they came home from Vietnam um, because they want to, uh, you know, they want to change the history because they're scared of the history. And that's one of the, the reasons behind this project of Eyes Left is we know that that potential is there. We know that that's not the case. We know that people aren't coming home from Iraq and Afghanistan or people aren't in the military. They're not being spit on by people in the movement. They're, uh, they're part of the movement and they have always been a part of the movement. And we want to grow uh, the number of people who, who are part of it because we know that they can be won over just like Spencer and I were won over. Yeah, and it's amazing how it, when you trace it back, like where did this story even come from? It actually comes from like a cartoon Abby, I think, uh, did you tweet out that the more you hear the same story being repeated ad nauseum, the more it sounds like lore? Yes. Yeah, I thought that was very apt. Yeah, Yeah, because some guy responded to me and he was like, actually, you're calling my dad a liar. And I was just like, well, this is, I mean, I think that this is fake, dude. I mean, what are the chances that like 20 people responded saying their dad told them literally the same story? Yeah, it's such a such a strange thing. I mean, it kind of almost, I mean, it's totally unrelated, but it reminds me of Trump saying that Muslims were cheering on the collapse of the World Trade Centers. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. if that was if that was something that happened in the 70s and people went around saying that, it would have probably stuck. But l- luckily we have like video evidence to prove that that's not true now. There's not even any video or like actual, you know, film of anybody spitting on soldiers' faces. So, yeah, it's fascinating how much that, I mean, up until you guys posted that, I thought it was true. Like, yeah, that's how no, dumb I yeah, am. exactly. So. Um, so, Spencer, uh, one of the most repellent factors of the U.S., of course, is this total bipartisan consensus for empire, militarism, endless war, not only from the government, of course, but from this defense contractor subsidized corporate media that controls 90 percent of everything that we see here and read. Military budget, of course, is bigger than the next 12 countries combined. As you mentioned, uh, you know, the latest defense bill passed for seven hundred billion dollars. It's a near trillion dollar defense bill. Of course, the increase this year alone, bigger than Russia's entire military budget. And I just wanted, I guess, your opinion on 
the fact that where we are today in our public discourse in society, that the media is having this collective meltdown about Trump not correctly honoring John McCain, who is a war criminal <laughs> in his own right. I mean, who deserves no accolades, but that was the controversy there. Spencer, what were you thinking when this was all unfolding? Well, the, the whole McCain situation is just astonishing because you have this guy whose entire political career has been to the detriment of 99% of the population of this country uh, and the rest of the world. But for me, what it does is it exposes just how shallow uh, the Democratic Party really is and how it does not exist as an oppositional force whatsoever. Um, and even two years now into the Trump presidency, the, the biggest thing that the, the Democrat establishment is concerned about is this nebulous idea of uh, decorum and civility and that they don't really have a coherent strategy or plan whatsoever to oppose the Republicans and they really don't want to because if they were to substantially you know call out the GOP call out McCain for what he really is then it would kind of you know reveal what their own uh, interests are in their own relation to power I'm not surprised anymore because in in the wake of all that's happened over the past two years we've seen nothing but impotence at best, uh, from the Democratic Party. And so this just adulation of a bona fide war criminal and just absolute repellent human being in John McCain, uh, it's just part and parcel of, you know, uh, liberal discourse and the Democratic Party at large. Spencer, speaking of the Democrats, what do you think the Democrats are doing pushing back to block U.S. troop removal from Korea in lieu of Trump's peace negotiations with Kim Jong-un, what does that actually signify? Uh, for, uh, for me, it signifies that uh, we have two political parties that are very much interested in war, uh, endless war at that, and uh, interesting in promoting the U.S. imperialist agenda. Uh, it, it's mind-boggling. Uh, I mean, it would be so easy if the Democrats, even from a cynical perspective, perspective wanted to uh, you know, articulate some kind of line that differentiates them from the Republicans in opposing, you know, the U.S. troop presence uh, in Korea, which, by the way, it's, you know, any U.S. presence here is vehemently opposed by North Koreans and South Koreans alike. Um, U.S. troops are notorious for assaulting and, in many cases, raping a lot of the women over there. Uh, they routinely uh, disrupt a lot of the, uh, the public uh, areas uh, in the country and so on. But, yeah, at the end of the day, for me, it just signifies that if we are going to substantially uh, oppose the disease of which Trump is a symptom of, it's not going to be through the Democratic Party whatsoever. Yeah, because, I mean, it seems like the Democratic Party is more interested in criticizing Trump from the right yeah. on a lot of his military or a lot of his attempts for detente with North Korea and Russia. So that's a it's a very strange shift that... In some ways, it seems like the Democrats are actively more hawkish just out of this petty desire to throw as much heat as they can at Trump, even when he's talking about doing things that are good in theory, like a detente with North Korea. It's very troubling. It's because, I mean, they don't have really any sense of uh, political principles or, uh, or ethical principles whatsoever. It's, again, a total shallow opposition that doesn't really have any underlying meaning, except, you know, we're not this guy. So... Yeah. Yeah. And there's bigger forces at play in the background, too. I mean, th this isn't without precedent. I mean, Jimmy Carter campaigned uh, on 
on getting troops out of Korea. I mean, that was one of his campaign promises was, oh, wow. was to vastly downscale or almost completely remove U.S. troops from Korea. And then when he got elected and he was the, you know, there's a lot of, I've seen a lot of people today say, oh, never before in American history have so many members of the State Department intelligence community openly spoken against the president. Uh, th- th- there are, that, it is a big thing happening now, but it is pales in comparison to the number of State Department, Pentagon officials, intelligence officials that spoke against Jimmy Carter when he was president over the issue of removing troops from Korea. So much so that like over a hundred Pentagon generals even took out like a full page ad in the Washington no Post condemning wow. Carter for his for a possibility of taking troops out of Korea. And they succeeded. They, they succeeded. The entire military establishment succeeded in making him back down on that. Um, and there's a really interesting pamphlet written by Sam Marcy at the time called Generals Over the White House. And it was explaining how that showed that even if you get some rogue president in there uh, who may do something that's against the collective interests of of the war machine, um, that there's this apparatus that exists that can clamp down on it and, and prevent it from going forward. And so whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, and anytime they try to step outside the bounds of what's best for imperialism, uh, there is a system in place to whip them into shape. Well, it's very interesting you say that because even some of the dynamic was playing out in Obama's second term. You saw almost all of a sudden a lot of these State Department and intelligence people that were completely on the same page with Obama all of a sudden do things like putting out ads in newspapers and you know condemning the Obama administration's treatment of Netanyahu and so yeah this is definitely not definitely not anything new Spencer after much hype Trump suddenly canceled that absurd idea for a military parade in Washington DC this grotesque glorification of war and militarism that would have cost a whopping 92 million dollars no big deal I mean, uh, not to mention that for the first time, the government was actually trying to charge the protesters themselves for their own policing pens and caged kennels for simply practicing their First Amendment. And then Trump followed up to say that he was going to use the money to buy more jets. Uh, What was your train of thought going, you know, from when the the military parade was announced and then until he said that? Well, when it was uh, when it was first announced, I thought uh, that it was going to receive at least some level of opposition from various, uh, you know, left-wing or anti-war veteran groups, and it might be uh, a moment or an opening to kind of speak with soldiers on why this entire situation is completely insane. Um, but uh, the fact that he canceled it, uh, it, it's kind of, it's interesting to me because I'm interested uh, in what parties he's surrounding himself with that called it off because... He had been wanting this idea, this show of force and power for a long time now. And to just suddenly cancel it like that, to me, it wasn't super surprising because at the end of the day, I think it's kind of just all a big, you know, circus act Mm -hmm. like that. You know, there's there's not, I mean, again, the real uh, things we should be paying attention to are what's happening, you know, in Venezuela, Iran, North Korea, and so on with relation to Trump. But uh, the fact he's saying he's going to spend more money on jets. I don't know if he means he's going to pump more money into the failed uh, F-35 project or something similar. But but again, I, I think it, it's just representative of us living in the simultaneously most horrifying but also most stupid time possible. Yeah, I loved that comment about the intersection. Yeah. I was just going to say QAnon <laughs> says about the military parade, timelines <laughs> change, watch the budget. Oh, so. you're to hear first. Very insightful. Yeah. Thank you, Q. Um, 
I mean, I guess I just have one really quick follow up, Spencer. I mean, as you know, as someone who just got out of the military, who's been around a lot of soldiers and also is just around DSA and now in this new era, you know, Trump escalated drone warfare 430 percent. He's he's literally carpet bombing civilians. He talked about torturing terrorist families. I mean, just really crude barbarism. Why do you think that there isn't more of an anti-war movement? I mean, I've been shouting from the rooftops since the Iraq war about the fact that we're bombing, I don't know, how many countries now openly? And and just the fact that Trump has taken this up to just a never um, before seen notch, especially with the drone bombs. Yeah. I, I just don't get the disconnect here. Um, I would say that, you know, the United States has always been a rather, um, you know, nationalistic uh, entity, but I think the post 9/11 era kind of crystallized this civic religion of patriotism, almost. And so, you know, in 2004, uh, rather than merely just opposing the wars that Bush had got us into, you know, you have this whole John Kerry, I'm reporting for duty thing uh, happening. So, uh, <laughs> slowly but surely, any sliver of political opposition kind of got subsumed. Uh, by the hyper-nationalistic rhetoric uh, and platform that you needed to adopt, even if you did want to kind of oppose what the GOP was carrying out. And, of course, the Democrats have always been the party of war, but it's kind of in keeping with the last 40 years of the neoliberal turn of the party uh, specifically. So so I think that's a big uh, aspect of it. And then what you have happen then is in... You know, you, you do get somewhat, you know, you guys were a part of it. Uh, you do get something of a traction of uh, an anti-war movement in the mid-aughts. But the Obama campaign uh, ran on a lot of promises of actually opposing the war. And that kind of subsumed, again, uh, there's a lot of subsumption out here, but that subsumed uh, a large chunk of the anti-war movement that opposed the war, but maybe didn't oppose uh, imperialism and didn't connect that a lot of those wars they said they were against are why they experience a lot of the creature comforts they do uh, in this country. And for me, that was also rather instructive because I studied uh, Middle Eastern history uh, in college, and I was like, these wars are not just about bad intentions. It's about the extraction of natural resources. It's about hegemony. And uh, to summarize it all, I suppose I would say that the reason why there is no tangible anti-war movement in this country is that it needs to be joined with a larger uh, socialist uh, anti-imperialist mass movement because otherwise it's hollow and merely an abstraction and it won't have a staying power and be able to connect to some of the systemic features that brought us into these wars in the first place. Incredibly well said. Thank you. I guess just one quick comment also to follow up just about the nature of the wars now, how, you know, Eric Prince is consulting with Trump. He's talking about privatizing Mm. Afghanistan. I don't know what the hell is going on in that world that he's running. Um, But yeah, just the privatization of the armed forces and the nature of the wars now. And if that adds to this abstraction. Yeah. uh, Well, I mean, uh, soldiers themselves, uh, many of them, particularly combat arms guys, you know, when they finish up their enlistment, they look forward to becoming contractors uh, because they get to still, you know, kill people with impunity, inflict violence without uh, any sense of um, accountability. But they get paid more uh, and they have a little bit more leeway. uh, And, you know, as we mentioned earlier, that whole cowboy mentality, it becomes even more uh, intensified as a contractor. Uh, So you have that aspect of it. And then, 
You know, whereas that's kind of what a lot of the enlisted combat arms guys do. Many of the high-ranking officers who retire will go and become CEOs or some arms dealer or some or some you know larger defense contracting uh, entity, you know, as a board member or whatever. Uh, so yeah, it, it's interesting, and, and I think it's very important to point out because it's um, and again to reference a film that kind of signifies this phenomenon, that horrible uh, that thirteen hours film. Um, it wasn't even about like army personnel. It wasn't about troops. It was about these contractors who yeah, were, yeah. were making this valiant last stand. But it's like, you know, you, you have the Blue Lives Matter fly. Like, everyone is a troop now. If you're just, like, some jingoistic shithead, you're considered a troop. Uh, and if you're killing brown people or inflicting violence on people of color uh, with, the, you know, American flag patch on your shoulder, then, you know, you're good to go. So, yeah, I, I think we need to be very much in tune with how uh, many of these soldiers who get this training become contractors and how there is... Uh, a very clear link uh, between both the military and, and these contractors, uh, these contracting forces uh, themselves. And it's not something that's creeping up either. It's something that's there. I mean, I, I think, you know, in the Iraq war alone, I think there is equal number of contractor deaths as there was U.S. troop deaths. So it yeah. actually doubles the number of U.S. casualties in the Iraq war because, you know, this uncounted f number of like 5,000 contractors uh, also died there um, who are doing things like, you know, guarding, uh, Haliber and plastic spoons on a convoy, things like that, and just driving around, of, of course, you know, shooting people for no reason. They're the, the most notorious for, for things like that. But it's, not, but it's not something that's, you know, this Eric Prince news story with Afghanistan, you know, the, the large sectors of the army and, and occupation force have already been privatized. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's nothing new, and we know that they're, you know, enjoy even more impunity for war crimes and, and things like that. So it's, it's something that we, of course, need to be be aware of and, and fighting against. Totally. The contractor thing is just such an interesting and, and still largely unexplored area of, of the Iraq war. And I think you mentioning the fact that there's probably an equal amount of actual casualties of contractors really brings that home. I mean, it was more of a topic that was discussed during the Iraq war, I feel like, especially after the Blackwater massacre. But we don't hear about the overwhelming majority of them. We forget that Nick Berg was a contractor doing some kind of weird satellite installations. Um, the military actually lied about why he was in jail. I, I remember watching long before the James Foley beheading video uh, released by ISIS, there was a Nepalese contractor in Iraq who was absolutely brutally beheaded on video. One of the most gruesome videos I've ever seen that you'd simply never heard about. He's Nepalese, he's a contractor, what do we care about it? It's unfortunate that it does kind of give the U.S. military almost more cover in the sense to conduct their operations. Um, you know, and then, of course, those people have families, too. A lot of people are, are actually not from the United States. You know, it's kind of a fire sale, in a sense, when a war starts like that, because the jobs are well-paying a lot of the time. I mean, they're kind of hard to resist for certain people. It's a, it's a really big issue. Yeah, and it's not right. So, I mean, there's, there's a, a, a big sector of these mercenary forces and private contractors in Iraq and Afghanistan. There are the guys like, you know, pulling a trigger. They got the security for convoys, private security, uh, things like that. But a large number of them are just like outsourced army jobs. Like, for example, like two yeah. of the big ones are mechanics and cooks. Where like, yeah, yeah. you know, the army has mechanics, the army has cooks. You deploy, there's the cooks doing the, the cooking, there's yeah. the mechanics working on or the IT guys. And they just outsource it. to Yeah, and they just outsource it to private companies. A lot of them... 
uh, from other countries. And so all of a sudden you have tons of people from the Philippines who are the cooks replacing the army cook. So, so it's a lot of unknown things like that. So yeah, a lot of the deaths are just, you know, young women from the Philippines who got brought on to be a maid or uh, on a base in Afghanistan and just get blown up, blown up by a rocket from incoming fire. So there's, yeah, there's that hidden, and it allows the U.S. to deny the amount of forces there, to, to lower the amount of casualties, all the things that create a political crisis for it back home. Absolutely. And, um, and Mike or Spencer, if both of you guys want to chime in on this, I mean, I've heard the theory that the U.S. empire and, and global capitalism is essentially a super organism at this point, acting as an autonomous machine. And I mean, I personally subscribe to that theory. But if board members and directors at these defense companies decide to quit in mass, that was a thought experiment, because of moral reasons, they'll just be instantly replaced. So the machine keeps grinding on. How can something like this actually be stopped when you factor in just the nature of how corporations are so intertwined with the war machine? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, an, it's, it's not even that, you know, if the board members all quit, they'll be replaced. Of, of course, that's the case. But the, capitalism as a system, everyone knows it has to expand, right? I mean, you have to make more money than you did the previous quarter or you're going to get gobbled up by something else. The nature of the system for, it, for the economy to go up for, for a segment of the population, there has to be expansion. And once you've expanded everywhere you can in your national borders, you have to expand outside your borders. Uh, that's what the world wars were about. The globe had already been carved up and the competing capitalist powers and other forces had to redivide the world. And so it leads to war. And so it's not even that if all the big corporations that are profiting from war decide to stop, they'll be instantly replaced, which is true. But the system itself would fall apart if it wasn't uh, projecting outward, go, starting more wars, seizing new sources of raw materials, sources of cheap labor, and things like that. And so it just so that it's, it's a systemic thing. It's like as long as you have a system that must increase its profits as a means of survival, it's going to lead to things like that. And so it's it's uh, it's not a it's not a complicated thing. I mean, you take all the institutions of society, you put them in the hands of the people, have it run democratically, and have things produced for human need instead of produced for the profit of a couple billionaires. This idea of expansion, and an expansion for the sake of expansion is the ideology of the cancer cell, as was once said. But uh, <laughs> the military itself uh, is so overextended at this point, with 800 military bases worldwide, uh, in terms of the actual personnel that uh, make up the ranks and, and the resources available. Uh, they It is reaching a limitation, and there is going to be, I think, within maybe the next 10, 20, 30 years or so, I think we will, on the left, have a moment, whether it's a coming financial crisis again, uh, linked with U.S. presence overseas, but we have a moment that we'll have to seize. And I think what has happened, you know, the past almost 20 years now, is we were kind of on the cusp of, of seizing a moment in some way and channeling that energy into a larger socialist project. But we kind of missed that opportunity and we fell prey to electoral, electoral politics or some other entity. And so in many ways, uh, as Mike said, it's, you know, the systemic critique is important, but we also need to articulate a powerful vision for the future that reaches people uh, inside and outside the military and recognizing that anti-war must be uh, anti-capitalist if it's at all going to be uh, substantive in the long run. I totally agree with both of you guys. I guess I just am seeing, you know, the military as it is today. We're talking about a military that has its tentacles in nearly every single country on earth for the sake of maintaining hegemony for global capitalism and to secure 
um, all of these interests. And, you know, it does seem, you know, just back to the eyes left, that last podcast, it does seem like the Trump era really represents this, the latest stage of capitalism in so many ways, Spencer, as you pointed out. The head of Marvel Entertainment taking over the effort to privatize the Veterans Affairs Department. He's sitting there with Captain America with VA officials ringing the New York Stock Exchange bell. I mean, it's just the most surreal as fuck thing. But I mean, I really think it symbolizes like we are in the death throes. We are in the decline of the U.S. empire. But given that fact that, you know, the death throes of the empire, what is it going to do to lash out um, militarily when it knows that it is going in the retreat? I think... uh you were right in uh, kind of centering this question of, well, if we're in the death throes, what does that mean in terms of the reaction from the military? And for me, that's why I think um, what truly is going to undermine and give us the ability to uh, defeat the U.S. military in so many ways isn't going to be this glorious pitched battle that a lot of people kind of imagine sometimes. I think uh, when you look at something as a good example, like the Carnation Revolution, in Portugal in 1974. Um, it's a little bit smaller scale, but the Portuguese, uh, they were overextended in terms of their colonialist ambitions in uh, Mozambique, Angola, and what was known at the time as Portuguese Guinea. Uh, and many of the soldiers who had been overseas were discontented with it, started to identify with many of the resistance fighters they were tasked with uh, defeating. And they came back, and a group of young officers, uh, coupled with some other NCOs, organized a committee known as the Armed Forces Movement, which in many ways, kind of destroyed the military or um, allowed them to reappropriate the military from the inside out. And in many ways, uh, Mike and I are trying to do that with eyes left to at least move the needle a little, a little bit and reach soldiers and, and, you know, tell them that, you know, there is going to be a coming crisis in terms of this capitalist mode of production, in terms of the overextension of the U.S. empire. And, you're going to eventually have to choose you know, what side you're on and what rule you want to play, and we kind of want to help them answer that question and let them know there is a way out. You don't have to continue going along uh, with the way things are. And if we could do our small part and then others talk with each other and you know, you, you build a consensus, uh, I, I think we have the ability to grind uh, the U.S. military uh, to a halt. So that death rattle will be more of a whimper, and there won't be one final... Um, blow that it attempts to inflict upon the population. Uh, And that's why right now we're in a stage where I think we need to be organizing um, in a molecular sense. You know, you start on a small scale with small groups of soldiers and that could grow into something bigger and eventually there won't be a mass of troops to carry out the ambitions of the U.S. empire. Before Trump drops a Moab on California. Right. I mean, yeah, no, what you guys are doing is so crucial for people who don't understand the very basic... Uh, logic that you guys are doing to reach out to the military who are, you know, who could turn against the military because good luck with trying to, you know, overthrow the system or replace the system with something much more democratic um, without getting the military on your side. Spencer, I had a bit of an inside baseball question for you specifically as a West Point student. Is student the right word or what would they, what would the proper? Yeah, student cadet. I mean, it's fine either way. Cadet, yeah, okay. So as a West Point cadet, apparently uh, war think tankers um, and neocons that I'm personally obsessed with, Kim Kagan and her husband, Fred Kagan, are highly respected instructors at West Point and widely loved by students. Did you ever hear anything about them while attending school, or did you <laughs> yeah, take no, their I, courses? I, uh, I didn't take their I'm aware of them. Um, in the uh, 
the poli sci department, there, there's this um, thing West Point has called the CTC, the Counterterrorism Center. And so you get a lot of those types uh, and who, who get to teach classes or they bring them in as speakers. You'll read their text. Uh, a lot of the, um, like, like John Mearsheimer, like neo-realist international relations theorists, they're very much lauded uh, at West Point. And, and again, West Point's kind of like, uh, it's like the clearinghouse for disgraced public figures that are still beloved by the right wing because, you know, John Abizade, uh, he's still, you know, very much considered a great general there. Obviously, Petraeus and McChrystal, uh, you know, fucking Robert E. Lee is still considered a great figure <laughs> in the minds of West Point. So, yeah, no, the, the Kagans, all, all these types are, are omnipresent there. And it's kind of this, you know, you know, West Point tries to create this ideal of the, the intellectual officer. So because you read these theorists, you, you presume to have some sense of sophistication uh, about yourself. But of course, at the end of the day, all you're really doing is supporting power uh, such as it exists right now. But yeah, totally. So I wanted to end the the discussion with with you guys with something a little bit lighter. We we kind of were enjoying, I, I felt like that when the, we were talking about Rambo, um, we were all talking over each other because we got so excited for a second. So <laughs> I wanted to give you guys the opportunity to discuss just, I guess, some of your war movies that you enjoy watching or that you think have valuable commentary. Just for the record, me personally, some of my favorites are Dr. Strangelove and, and Full Metal Jacket, which I just watched recently, which is insanely dark. I mean, it's... It, I, I would, and, and that's another thing I wanted you guys to speak on after telling me about some of your favorite movies, war movies, and why, is why there is such a lack of movies about modern warfare in Hollywood or just in general, even independent cinema that are as dark and as critical as movies like Full Metal Jacket. Or it's it's interesting because, like as Truffaut said, there really isn't any anti-war film ever. Because at the end of the day, just the medium of film, you're in in some sense glorifying combat uh, and, and you know the, the violence inherent in war. Um, I, I think some films that get close to adequately expressing the horror would be something like Johnny Got His Gun. Uh, but even in films that you know glorify war, I think they're very much um, instructive for understanding uh, what it means to actually you know be involved in combat or even just the train you know military training aspect itself. And so I definitely you know uh, Full Metal Jacket is very good in kind of just getting into the uh, the nitty gritty of what it means to you know go through the traumatic experience of being indoctrinated in military training and then deploying itself. Uh, but that's one of those films that's like. It's interesting how so many military personnel themselves kind of miss the point. Like, and love it. They love it. They, they think that, yeah. you know... I was just going to say that. Part- no, because I had a roommate who was an yeah. Iraq War veteran who... It was his favorite war movie, and he was the most patriotic, fucking right. supporting Republican ever. So sorry, right. I continue. Yeah, and, and no, you're good. You're, you're, I'm glad you said that, because Country Sergeant Hartman is... You know, he's abominable. He abuses all of his recruits, and... He's so abusive that it results in his death and, you know, the death of his own killer. Um, but, yeah, but they, they see that guy like, yeah, this guy's fucking cool, man. I want to be like him. Um, so you got that. Uh, Dr. Strangelove, I absolutely adore. Uh, the figure of Jack D. Ripper is so eerily accurate that it, like, <laughs> it makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. Um, but I, I'd also add uh, Apocalypse Now because um, – mm-hmm. It's the, the interplay uh, between um, uh, Kurtz, uh, Colonel Kurtz's character and how he kind of views 
uh, wars, you know, we didn't go far enough, uh, we needed to do more, but that scene is like a, a sort of critique. And so then you get certain active duty personnel themselves who kind of like feel that way. Uh, and it's interesting, the, the whole idea of this heart of darkness uh, and so on, I think is very much uh, illuminating if you kind of want to get into like the various ideologies or mentalities you encounter within the ranks, whether you want to be the straight and arrow or the cowboy or, you know, the, the intellectual uh, soldier. But again, at the end of the day, they all support the imperialist project, but just understanding how that mentality is, uh, is manifested and nurtured, I think is very, uh, very much important. I yeah, know. I think I think Spencer's point on on how even films that are that have an anti-war message can still be completely misinterpreted and 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 still feed into the kind of militaristic culture and glorification we have. I mean, I remember like you know like a film like Deer Hunter, which you know I think it is an anti-war film in a lot of ways. Besides, it's like you know really ridiculous interpretation of how American POWs were treated by Vietnamese. That all that's completely ridiculous. But there's you know these scenes where there's just like the the veteran, the battle-hardened veteran sitting alone at a bar, staring into his beer glass, thinking of all the terrible things that, that he was part of. That is even in a, in a romanticized way, where it, where it makes the viewer, yeah. if they're thinking about joining them, it like makes them like aspire to be that cool veteran sitting alone at the bar, staring into his, his beer glass. And that, that persona, that kind of role, and, and, and a lot of veterans, you know, they get out and they adopt this persona because they've seen it in movies so much. Um, so even things like that, you know, uh, romanticize the military, even though you should be looking at it being like, I don't want to fucking be that guy <laughs> sitting alone at the bar just getting drunk every day because I can't sleep at night. Um, it, it should dissuade you from wanting to be in the military, but but it really doesn't. But, you know, there's an interesting... Uh, Spencer, I don't know if you had uh, similar experiences, but I remember when I was in the military, um, any time that there was a little bit of downtime, they would put movies on for us. Oh, yeah. To, to waste time and the two it was always two movies it was the patriot starring mel yeah, gibson yeah. or it was black hawk down <laughs> yeah. and and both of those are funny because first of all the patriot with mel gibson i mean that's about like a guerrilla army fighting a foreign occupier so if anything that movie just inspired us uh, to identify with the iraqi people which is what you know ended up turning me around as being like well if i was fucking iraqi i'd be like mel gibson in the patriot and be yeah. like trying to kill these soldiers in our neighborhood um but then the fact that black hawk down is just shown on repeat to soldiers from from basic i started watching it in basic basic training all the way to every they always be putting that fucking movie on but the whole movie is about some dumbass officer getting his soldiers into a stupid ass thing for no reason and then completely <laughs> fucking up the mission where everyone fucking dies yeah. it's just like it's people should watch that and be like um maybe i don't want to go in this thing and have well they watch it and they want to end up like um eric bana's character who the delta guy yeah. they want to be you know you do it because it's the man next to you that's who they end up you know identifying mm -hmm. with yep no, it's ridiculous. But I mean, my I think my favorite uh, uh, war movie uh, would really be Born on the Fourth of July, which is a true story written by Ron Kovic, um, who wrote you know this memoir and when he thought it was his suicide letter. But the film it, it just really kind of blows up all those romanticized visions, right? I mean, he is this true believer. His birthday is literally the 4th of July. So he grew up, this all-American boy, joins the Marines during Vietnam. And then what, his combat experience in, in Vietnam, it you know, it depicts him uh, killing an entire family, a woman with her baby and things like that. And so that was the the glory of combat. Um, but then yeah. he gets he gets shot, he gets shot in the in the chest and it, it, he gets paralyzed from the chest down from a, a bullet wound to his spine. And then it shows how 
you know, you, you go and do this glorious thing of, of hurting innocent people, but then he just got chewed up and spit out, and they didn't give a shit about him. He came home paralyzed. It shows the really horrific, brutal treatment he got in the VA, um, how him and just everyone else blown to pieces just got, you know, were completely abandoned, thrown out on the street. And so it says that all of the ideals that you believe, and not only is it, you know, are you not doing what you're told you're doing overseas, um, but that government that, that told you all those things, they could give a shit about you when you get back. And, and his transition of going through all those little steps of understanding uh, and then culminating with him uh, leading an anti-war protest uh, against, the, against the DNC, actually, um, you know, really, I think, speaks to the experience of many and, and is really one that shows, and it's by Oliver Stone, who himself is a, is a combat-wounded veteran um, from Vietnam. And so, you know, th those, I think, are the real honest betrayals of what it means to be in the military and, and, you know, do far more good than any of these other weird war porn movies. You know, thank you so much for all your guys' time um, and for, yeah, for taking the time today to do this podcast. Spencer, Mike, you guys are amazing. Um, I'm seriously, like, blown away by just the couple episodes that you guys have put up already on Eyes Left. I really encourage anyone who's listening to please support this project. It's far beyond just a podcast it's a tool. Um, it's a tool to help wake up the military. We need to get the military on our side. We need to agitate against the empire, against the war machine. And this is the perfect way to do it. Um, thank you so much, Mike Spencer. Uh, keep kicking ass. And, and thanks again for all of your work and efforts. And uh, just really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us oh, on. So, sorry, yeah, I forgot to say, uh, give a quick plug. Mike, tell us where people can find and support Eyes Left and also where they can find you and then Spencer, go on to plug your stuff. Yeah, well, uh, Eyes Left, you can find on Instagram and Twitter at Eyes Left Pod. You can listen to it on any major streaming platform. Just search for Eyes Left or you can just go to SoundCloud slash Eyes Left. Uh, of course, on our Twitter, we post all the, the new episodes and everything. Uh, most importantly, though, if you're in the military or you're a veteran and anything we've said resonates with you, um, but you need advice, especially if you're in the military and you want to get out or use your position in the military to, to do some good, uh, we're, we're here for you in, in whatever way you need. And you can email us at uh, eyesleftpod at gmail. Um, and if you're someone who knows anyone in the military, I mean, sharing our episodes with them, I mean, our, our, we're speaking directly to soldiers. And so if you know any, you know, it's a way that you can do your part if you're not in the veteran or military yourself is, is help spread the word uh, to those who you think it might, it might help out. All of that holds true for me too. But if you want to, you know, reach me one-on-one -on, -one on pretty much all social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, etc. I'm at punk proletarian. So either email us at eyes left or you can message me there and know we could help you out. Thanks again. You guys really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for coming Thank on. You. All right. Thanks for having us. <laughs>